Greetings, and welcome to the Net Positive Podcast. My name is Ted Flanagan. I am your host. For this episode, I'm joined by Dave Houghton. He's an engineer that I've known for many years. I hired him to work for me at the Rocky Mountain Institute, and he's had a colorful career that he's going to tell us all about. Hey, Dave, welcome to the Net Positive Podcast. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks, Ted. It's really, it's really great to see you on our, on our Zoom meeting, and I look forward to our conversation greatly. So let's go all the way back. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in the Bay Area. I'm a Berkeley boy, uh, left-wing, liberal, raised uh, in the 70s. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm a California product. And then you hung right there for college, right? You went to, you went to Berkeley. Well, I kind of detoured. Uh, I really had no idea what to do with myself after high school. So I, I took what's now called a gap year. Back then it was, what the heck are you going to do with your life? And I actually took two years, debunked in Tahoe. Uh, and I got my first taste of engineering because um, I, I got a, a job do, really being a geotechnical lab monkey of sorts, uh, putting dirt in bags and, and passing concrete cylinders. This was out in Wyoming. So I was actually working in the coal mines of Wyoming, which is not like a headlamp kind of a job. It's more like a pickup truck. Um, the coal is not in, in the ground. It's, it's like they just scrape it up from the ground. So um, anyway, that was, that, that was part of my intro to engineers. And I thought, they, these guys are kind of cool. Like, I, maybe, I shall, maybe I'll try engineering. And that eventually led to heading back to community college. I went the junior college route. And then um, Berkeley was my, I grew up in the East Bay. So that's how I pictured college and Seder Gate and the whole thing. And that's the only college I applied to. And thank goodness I got in as a transfer student. And uh, yeah, graduated and then set forth from there. And was, was that Berkeley experience everything you wanted it to be? Totally. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and it's a little, uh, for those people who aren't quite sure about how to go about that, the junior college route was great because the lower division classes at a big school like Berkeley are huge. You're in big amphitheaters, you've got a TA, your professor is kind of hard to reach, but at Foothill and De Anza, where I went, we were in classes of 25 or 30, we had great teachers and uh, great, great student um, uh, energy, and so it all worked out great. And Berkeley is, is fantastic. And I, I've been back there recently and it, it continues to grow and uh, it still is, it sh shines and shows very well. And uh, it's just an amazing place. And, and at Berkeley, you can, if you, if you take a few electives, uh, I took electives in things like Russian history or um, uh, Middle Eastern history. And just, you, you get these fascinating lecturers and, and professors that have our um, world authorities on these things. So it was terrific. And, you know, coming home from class one day, the talking heads are playing down on, on Zellerbach Plaza. So it's stuff like that. It's great. And Blondie's Pizza. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, sounds fantastic. You've got your degree in civil engineering. Yeah, civil engineering. Back then, the joke was this is in the 80s that uh, mechanical engineers build weapons, civil engineers build targets. I was just interested in engineering and I had heard that it was harder to get into the mechanical program than civil. So I applied for civil. So I want to make sure I got in. 
as, as it turns out, I'm really glad. Civil get, covers such a broad range, broad range of, uh, of topics and you learn uh, a lot about a lot of things. And so I really appreciate that exposure. And then first job out of college, wasn't that doing some company that was involved with transportation or building highway? Right, that was Kaiser Engineers, which now is part of ICF. And I worked in their transportation division. And I was at first laying out extensions to light rail systems, which was pretty, pretty cool. So I worked in places like Seattle, uh, Cleveland, and uh, San Francisco as well, worked on a, on a BART yard. So it was uh, some design stuff. Uh, it was a big company, 1,400 engineers, international. And so they had, they didn't call it mentoring back then, but we had elders that knew the ropes. And so I learned a lot. And I learned about the business of engineering too, and billing hours and doing proposals and getting projects and putting teams together and staying on time and all that stuff. I kind of like the way we're trending here. We're going from uh, strip mining in Wyoming <laughs> to, to light rail systems around the country. And then I think this is really when we met. Um, I, was, right. I was the energy program director at Rocky Mountain Institute, Institute out in Colorado. And you applied for a research associate position, I think it was. And, and talk about that transition, because that was really fun, the way this all Came yeah, about. yeah, that was great. So all along, you know, growing up, I, I felt like environmental protection should be the organizing principle for like everything we do on earth. It just made sense to me. And I didn't understand why everybody didn't see it that way. And the 80s were tough for that. It was the Reagan years. We had James Watt. We had um, the Cold War was in full bloom. And we also had this any time, any day, there could be 15 minutes left to live. I don't know if uh, you remember, we all remember, we lived through that, right? So it just was, um, my, my thought was, well, renewable energy seems to be like the way to go. And so solar power, which was still, you know, it was barely crawling out of the lab back then. It was so expensive and it was not really real, but um, so we were looking and then we're all hopeful for fusion power, Nuclear power was still sort of in its heyday, but the idea, you know, the idea that you could get your energy from the sun and do passive solar design, that all made sense to me. I always thought about the generation side of it, and I didn't think about the demand side and until I read uh, a really long piece in the New York Times about Amory Lovitz, and that was just like a, you know, knock upside the head, like, oh my God, this is the other part of the equation and maybe it's the biggest part of the equation because this is what buys us time to get to a renewable energy future. And so based on that, I wrote a letter to Rocky Mountain Institute. I addressed it, I think, to Amory personally. It probably went to Farley. And I got a response. And then I that led to communications. And then we set up the interview. And uh, and that was that was a, a quite a trip too. Well, and the and then the interview was uh, was unique. Well, the first part of it, I came out to interview with you, and this was I think before the South America part. So I can't, and I was a I'm a mountain climber, ice climber, and so my buddy in Boulder, I just, I turned it into like a two week Colorado exploration, and. We the day before I interviewed with you, we were ice climbing in Glenwood Canyon, and then we stumbled back 
uh, we were, I think we were sleeping out of a pickup truck or something, uh, Dave and I, and like in bivouac bags or something. And I remember pulling up to the Institute the night before I was going to interview and the lights were on. So I knocked on the door and Amory comes to the door and I said, hi, I'm, I'm Dave. I'm here to, to talk about a position with the energy program. And Amory says basically something like, oh, hi, Dave. Uh, hey, do you know anything about the, um, the, the various alloys of molybdenum? And that was that was my introduction to Amory, and I had to say, mm, I don't. <laughs> but he was deep in some problem involving Molly alloys, and here comes an engineer, and he's that, that's just how how he rolls, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we and then we interviewed in the kitchen the next day, and it was a beautiful day, and I, I had my skis, and at some point he said, Hey, why don't we go finish this on the ski lift? So we went out to Buttermilk. And we rode the, the lifts and skied a bunch the rest of the afternoon. And that was the interview. And it, and it, I didn't get word that you were going to hire me until I was in South America, like two months later. That's right. And you called, you called in or something. And we, and uh, what, what, I called from a hotel room, a cheesy hotel room in Cusco, Peru. And back when you had to use those like 12 digit calling card numbers, and it cost dollar fifty a, a minute and all that stuff. <laughs> and, it was, and you basically, I got a hold of you and you said, "Yeah, you, you've got you've got the job, you've got the intern position." <laughs> and I was so excited. It it really turned my whole life turned turned on on a dime that during that that, that phone call because uh, that meant I was moving to Colorado. I was starting a new life. I was starting a new career. I was going in a new direction. And I was, yeah, super excited, and I, I still am. So you you were with Rocky Mountain Institute, and then for our listeners, Rocky Mountain Institute spun off and became eSource, moved down to moved down to the big city of Boulder, down to the Front Range, and you were with eSource for a number of years and doing research on energy efficient technologies and practices, uh, and then and then you moved to Crested Butte. I believe, and formed your own company, right? Yeah, that's almost the exact sequence. I, I, the spinoff happened. I was one of four people that came from RMI and moved to Boulder to start eSource, including Rob Bishop and Michael Shepard. And um, I think Brady was uh, part of that, that initial crew. And that turned out to just be a great adventure too. Moving to Boulder, what a great place, great folks. Jim Newcomb, we hired as president, and it was a really exciting time. And we expanded the whole concept, which was working with electric utilities, mostly also gas utilities and some governments and folks like the Department of Defense and, and eventually um, energy users like, like Walmart and Home Depot and so on to be energy efficiency experts and, and eventually energy experts in general. Now, eSource continues, they're going strong, and it was great to be a part of that at the beginning. The part that I got into, I, I sort of, it was kind of a matter of timing, but I became the cooling guy, cooling and heating, but mostly the cooling HVAC guy, which I never intended to. I'm a civil engineer and that's all mechanical engineering, but that was what fell to me. And I well, I was the lead author on the, the books on that topic. So that's what that was all about. And it was a time of, of, of learning and then almost immediately um, uh, teaching <laughs> and explaining. 
And so we went on tours with and saw the PG&Es and the Con Eds of the world and lectured with that to them on optimizing chiller systems and load reduction and shading and all these things, right? So eventually, though, my frustration as an engineer was that I hadn't actually done any of it. I'd only written about it, read about it, talked about it, and promoted it and evangelized and all that stuff. And I didn't, I, I hadn't done it. I, I, I couldn't use the three words in my experience to start almost any kind of statement about that entire realm. And so I, I proposed to start a consulting operation within eSource because we had people asking us all the time, like, all right, we're going to build a new Walmart or whatever. What do we do? How do we do all this great stuff that you're saying to do? And we sort of made kind of fainting attempts at it, but it was never really wholehearted. And eventually the word that I got was, well, we need you to keep doing reports. And that's when I, I, I had to, I had to leave and I had to start my own thing. And so I, I started a mechanical engineering consulting company, having never done, done it at all. Just, you know, talked about it, which when I look back at this now just seems kind of nuts, but um, I got one client and uh, that almost immediately kind of got in trouble. <laughs> uh, it's a whole nother story. It all worked out. Um, I stepped into a project where the owner was not satisfied with their engineers and they wanted to do all this stuff. They wanted to make it efficient. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And I basically took over the project without talking to the other engineers. And so I quickly learned that that's not the way that works. You have to, you know, coordinate. And so anyway, uh, that was, and that was on the Pearl street mall in Boulder. I had my little office there. It was just me. And then uh, in a, in a move of, uh, really kind of strategic, what would appear to be strategic idiocy, moved to the almost the least populated place in the 48 states, uh, Gunnison County, and set up shop there. However, it turned out that I was the only registered engineer in Gunnison County when I got there. And so things actually worked out and I was busy. And then in little towns like Thousand Crested Butte, there's there's a lot of overeducated people in, in some of these beautiful little towns that just are there because they want to be there. So people like August and Dodson, who now are the owners of my former company, they kept knocking on my door and saying, you know, I have an engineering degree. What can, you know, can I do, can I help? Can I, can I work with you? And so never really intending to, I built a company of 10, we were 10 engineers, it's 13 now. And we became really the go-to mechanical, electrical, plumbing, engineering shop for the Western Slope of Colorado. I think that that, co that company resource engineering group still is, and we have always specialized in energy efficient and alternative and bend, bend the rules, break the rules design. And we like to say, we don't just think out of the box. We were never in the box because none of us, uh, there, we, had, we actually had a few people whose degrees match what we do, but for the most part, August degrees in glass and ceramic engineering. And uh, so this kind of fits in with some of the themes that we've talked about at RMI and perhaps you have too of the business as usual model needs to get um, disrupted uh, for engineering. It's gotten a lot better over the decades. That was in the 90s, right? 
And mechanical engineering is one of the, the slower disciplines to really recognize and wake up to the reality of what we need to be doing in today's buildings. And it was uh, a culture of pretty much do what you've always done, cover your ass, make sure there's plenty of cooling and, and, and heating power, oversized stuff. Uh, Lee and Locke, who was one of our, our, our great mentors back in the day, he used to joke that if, if uh, mechanical engineers designed a table, it would have six legs be made of titanium. Things were over-designed all the time. So we specialized in right-sizing. We took on projects that, that nobody else wanted to do. We were early into ground source heat pumps, which now are a, a pretty big deal. Heat pumps in general are a huge deal. And so we, we really hung it out there on the line and we, we stepped our toe a few times and uh, you know, you learn along the way, but uh, we, we had a great company culture. We had a lot of fun along the way. And I added it up at one point. It was I signed off on somewhere around 500 building uh, HVAC systems over nearly two decades. So now I can say, in my experience, my experience, very good. And and what think about some of the most exciting projects that you worked on? Um, I, I'm thinking of that one that had that cooling tower. Add a little bit of color to these uh, yeah hundred building. Uh, yeah, it's funny. Like, the way these things come around and we got a call from an architect in Mexico city and I'm trying to remember how this one came around. And a lot of this is when you write a paper or present at a conference, then word gets around. Right. So this turned out to be a really great project. It was a headquarters building for a company called Calidra in Mexico. They make lime. Lime is the stuff that goes into tortillas. It also goes into, a lot of building products, and it's it's not the same as Portland cement, but it's similar. It's a calcium compound, and they had this uh, operation in a town called Torreon, Mexico, in the central part of the of the wide part of Mexico, and uh, a, a town of uh, that of a million people that most gringos had never heard of, and I had never heard of, and. So we, uh, I had written something somewhere about how you could do this Persian cool tower technology that is 3,000 years old. And um, it was also done earlier at the Zion National Park Visitor Center, which is one of the best places to go see this if you want to. So we, 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 got, we designed the cool towers for this building. It's a perfect climate for it. It's a little, it's a little bit higher altitude. So you have fairly dry air. They have a hot, dry climate. Evaporative cooling works really well. The idea with a cool tower is that you just, you have a tall tower, the taller, the better within reason. And then you have evaporative media at the top. And so natural breezes, or even if you don't have a natural breeze, you'll get air that contacts the wet media at the top of the tower. When that happens, it goes through the evaporative process. The air gets cooler, it gets heavier and sinks down the shaft. As it does that, it induces a draft that pulls more air in and it reinforces itself. And then pretty soon you have a good flow of air, cool air coming into the building. And then you just direct the exhaust to direct the airflow through the various parts of the building that you want to get it to. And so, you know, we had never done like the reverse of a chimney. Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, you know, that's one of the things that the, the Persians did. They had a cool tower and a hot tower. You have a hot tower over on the other side a dark, uh, dark masonry tower, and that forces an induced draft the other way, 
which creates a, a, a you know a negative pressure that helps the inflow coming down the cool tower. So we didn't passive, do that. Basically, like a passive heating, a passive cooling system. Exactly. How, how tall would those towers were? The towers. Um, I can show you pictures of them. They were about ten meters, I think, twelve meters, which is like you know thirty-five feet, something like that. 35, 40 feet. So it went way above the, the roof of the building that you were designing? Yeah. Yeah. It was a, the, the, the architect was a rather famous Mexican architect. Um, his name, uh, I'll, I'll have to recall his name, but uh, it's a beautiful building. It's, and it's pure white. It's made with Calidra. It's made with the line that's, that's mined right there on site. And it's just a really cool looking building. Single story, but it moves around a little bit elevation wise. And then the towers, are about twice to maybe three times as tall as the building itself. And I think there was like five or six of them and it ends up looking really cool. What a great story. So about, about 17 years of being at the helm of, of REG, your engineering firm in, in Colorado, right? Right. And then, and then another shift, uh, another west, westerly shift. You wanted to get back to California. Yeah, and every time I came to California, it kind of smelled like home. So eventually uh, my family and I made the move and that was eight years ago. And that initiated the completion of the transfer of my company to the younger guys, which all worked out really well for everybody. And then they're very happy running. I just spent last week, uh, they came out to California and we were hanging out down in SoCal and, and going to some shows and, and, so we're also good good friends. We we occasionally work with each, or for each other, but I wanted to circle back now to kind of the things that that you and I were doing, working, getting getting my hands on, on bigger levers, getting involved with policy, and eventually education, which is one of the main things that I'm doing now because uh, now I'm teaching this stuff at Cal Poly here in San Luis Obispo, and. I sort of have an, I had an idea that that would be a good thing to do. And I taught a little bit back in Gunnison at uh, Western state and I enjoy it. It's, and there's a, there's a phrase that somebody told me about, which is learn, earn, return. So, um, kind of time to return and, uh, to, to spread, spread the good word to the next generation and inspire them and show them some of the possibilities that are out there because there is a lot of work to do. And buildings use 40% of our energy in the United States. And we, we have somewhere around, oh, it's about, um, I think it was about 100 million households in the US and somewhere around 10 million commercial buildings. So we've gotten to the point now where we can, most climates do really, we can, we, we can design very, either very efficient or zero energy buildings in most climates. And the real challenge is, is the retrofits because um, we have you know, over 100 million buildings already in the US and they weren't built all green and, and all this year. And so there is a ton of work to do. People are hiring. The companies that do this work, companies like Clear Result and the utilities themselves and a, a whole ecosystem of consultants they're all needing people and there's there's money available to do this and as energy prices keep going up then that's 
making the case more strongly to do these retrofits and to make our existing building stock perform better. Solar prices, of course, have come way, way down. And so everybody wants to put that in. The next wave is battery storage, uh, microgrids, which you and I have been working on recently, and you've done some great work on that. So there's just, there's a ton to do. And it's one of those things that it doesn't fit into any engineering discipline that is currently taught. It's sort of a interstitial kind of a skill. And so really civil, mechanical, or electrical engineers, really any kind of engineer can, can enter this field. And, but there's very few programs that focus on it. And there's not a lot of classes that, that I know of that teach what I teach, which is you know this, this, this kind of stuff. So, and we don't have enough interdisciplinary engineers that under, that is structural engineers or architects for that matter, especially architects that really get how heat transfer works and what's involved and required for electrical systems and what happens when you put up a huge wall of West glass on, on a building in a hot climate, you know? So there's a lot to say about all this. There's a lot to learn and there's a lot to do. And, and there's this uh, busting through this disbelief that you can have this all for zero net marginal cost, right? That if you downsize your, your systems, uh, because they are oversized, as you, so, as you so rightly pointed out, you downsize your systems, you can create savings. Basically, you build smart and you can build very cost effectively as well. Um, I did want you to touch on the project that we're working on because I'm thrilled that you're part of it. And we're working with the Clean Power Alliance, a community choice aggregator. And thanks to you, we're going to a lot of sites here in Southern California and figuring out how to build energy resilient facilities by combining solar and storage and controls, whether they're called microgrids or not, they're going to be able to island. And you've been the guy leading our on-site work. And what you said about retrofit is really key. Uh, Talk a little bit about the sort of this diversity of facilities and our challenge at hand. Right. So we've been going to, I think it's like 27 uh, facilities now, mostly single buildings. Sometimes they're campuses, city halls, police departments, community centers, aquatic centers, and coming in with the idea of where can we, where can we add solar and batteries to the existing electrical system to effectively make a microgrid and make a, turn this building into a building that can exist and subsist on its own in the event of a long-term grid failure, a long-term meaning more than a few hours. So days to possibly a couple of weeks. So, you know, earthquake, um, tsunami, major weather, whatever. These, we're seeing these things more and more uh, fire here in California for sure. So for the most part, this has been really well received by the communities that we're operating in. And they're, you know, most people are very excited about the possibility of doing this. So we're going in and we're seeing everything from original 1964 electrical panels that some of which have like a big round dial and it says amperes, you know, um, uh, we, we've seen some really amazing and kind of cool stuff. Uh, some, a lot of buildings have been retrofitted already. Uh, 
many of them uh, LED lighting has already been done. And so that all helps because it reduces the load. And then we have a discussion over what's the most important loads. And more and more buildings are going to have to have a separated critical loads and non-critical loads electrical system. When batteries and solar, well, the solar is already there, but when batteries get cheap enough, then we maybe won't have to worry about that so much and won't be able to just throw tons of battery capacity at it. That's the way it is with backup generators right now, but they run on fossil fuels and they're not indefinite. And so that's what we've been seeing. And it's been really interesting seeing these facilities that some of them are emergency operation centers. We get lots of stories about how these buildings work like oh we have this annual parade and and this is where we base everything out of or um yeah well the last time the fire came through here we had you know everybody here and then the lights went out and the generator on but then we you know we, so it it feels really good to be helping create places that are going to be community places of refuge in the event of a, of a real disaster and the technology is there now and the battery it's still kind of the wild west for, for the battery game and that's going to settle down hopefully but um, i'm looking forward to seeing how that all turns out and it's been really interesting doing it yeah well thanks thanks for being part of it and these assessments are key where as you know we're building a portfolio of buildings that we're going to take out to market and and we're going to be looking for an energy service company or somebody to come in and install all these systems and operate them and own them for the next 25 years Right. So it's a really cool project. Um, again, thanks for being part of it. And Dave, you've, you're one guy that I, I respect so much in terms of balance. I met you when you were a, when you needed pretty much a month off every year to go rock climbing in South America. And you still uh, maintain all this balance in your life. And uh, let's talk about flying for a second, because this is just, you've just taken off, pun, pun intended. You're an instrument rated pilot and you love flying, don't you? Oh yeah, it's dangerous to ask me to start talking about flying, but yeah, we live in a time where this is possible. There's something I always wanted to do. I started flying when I got my first job out of college. So I've been flying for almost 35 years now. And um, I'm a part owner of an airplane and I get to use that to fly to work or for pleasure. Um, and it's a real privilege to be able to do that. And I love the challenge of it. Instrument flying in particular is uh, very data intensive and uh, planning. And I've realized at some point that it's kind of taken over the place in my in my my heart and my mind that rock climbing and mountaineering used to, where you kind of have to train for it. You have to be in shape, you know, more mental than physical shape. But and you have to have a plan. You have to stay cool when things are are getting kind of crazy. And it's a it's just a fascinating challenge and it takes you to incredible places. Um, I've had, you know, moonlit night flights over Utah at 17,000 feet where the, you know, the Milky Way is right there. And um, I, I've cruised through the Canyon countries and, and uh, gone over Yosemite park, looking right down at El Cap and um, it just goes on and on. And, uh, I flew with my daughter to Catalina uh, right before she went to college to have kind of the last uh, little adventure. And then with my other daughter, we flew to Mount Rushmore because she really wanted to see Mount Rushmore. So we took off 
from San Luis Obispo at lunch, and we were in South Dakota by dinner. So Great. it's it's fantastic, and uh, yeah. And then the other the other some of the other sides that balance you, I know, are, are music. We play music together. Yeah, you're into sports. You're into biking. You're into tennis. All the stuff I'm into. Yeah, so you've been able to you've been able to, and maybe it's been a discipline as well, but able to keep a balance through all of this, through all your whole career of uh, keeping very, very uh, athletic and, and very active while taking on all these innovative engineering concepts and teaching us, we sure can use a lot less energy if we use it smartly. So that's off to you, Mr. Houghton. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I've made it a priority. It's, it hasn't always been easy, uh, but I, I really have, have, have worked at it and tried. And I, I tell my students too, that you can design your own life. You know, you don't have to just take what they give you. Um, and it depends on, um, you know, what you want and just getting after it. Yeah, absolutely. Having that healthy balance keeps a healthy mind. And that's what we really need to solve many well, of I'll them. Throw, I'll throw it right back at you, Ted, because you've, you've played music, you've had adventures, you've been, you've done, a, you've had an amazing career. I should be interviewing you about all stuff i mean i my hat's off to you uh the you've been fighting the good fight in so many different ways for so long now and it's a real pleasure to to still be connected and still be working together brothers in arms thanks dave <laughs> that's it thanks for tuning in to this edition of the net positive we'll see you next time